That's a song you could take home today and just kind of ponder all afternoon probably. There was a lot in that. That's a very meaty song. Uh, I'd encourage you to do that if you haven't. You know, maybe take a hymnal or go online to one of the websites that has carols and hymns and maybe just read one and think about it's, uh, how it fits with Scripture and what Scripture it calls to mind and reflect on it, especially this season. Because there is a, a, a way that poetry captures what we experience in life uh, in the way that just regular words don't necessarily. Uh, I was reminded of that this week. I read uh, these particular words. See if they resonate with you at all. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down dark paths. It's an excerpt of some words of poetry. And I wonder if if you can relate to the thoughts, if not the specific situation the author is trying to capture. If not right now, I'm sure at some point in your life you have felt those words, you know, and no one looks out for me or protects me. Perhaps you know some folks are walking through that season right now where they're overwhelmed in the jungle, they're thirsty in the desert, their souls appear broken, twisted, and stuck. As we look at our passage today, we've already read it, in fact. It is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And as we turn there to focus on it during this time, it provides a real source of hope for us from a really surprising place. It offers peace for you, for me, and for the world. It offers actually the only way to put the pieces of the broken world together again forever. And so let's consider this probably somewhat familiar text today here and see what it says about peace. Would you read with me, please? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is God's word. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, that it is trustworthy and true, and that it gives to us the only real hope that we have in life and death. It presents to us Jesus. And I pray that He would be real for us today, offering us the hope of peace 
Not just for a short time and not just the absence of war and conflict, but Lord, the presence of so much more. The fixing of all that is broken. The meeting of every longing of our hearts. At least, O Lord, give us the foretaste of that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The poem I was quoting a minute ago also says this. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever? Homeless, free-falling into void. And with those words, you might hear sort of the negative echo of Psalm 23. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. In fact, this poem... It is called Anti-Psalm 23. It was written by Christian counselor and author David Powelson a number of years ago, trying to capture in a different way the experience of many of his counselees and the hope that can only be found in Jesus, the hope for peace, and to very often show the way that life goes without him, without Jesus. I feel like the, there's more to it. Google it later if you want. But there's, there's a lot in that poem, in that anti-Psalm 23, that just captures our world today and the things that we experience in the world around us and even in our own hearts. The dislocation we feel, the epidemic of anxiety that our young people go through, the the bizarre paradox of being more connected than any people in the history of the world and yet feeling more alone and isolated, even as we are able to see the whole world and interact with anyone on the planet, we feel alone and anxious, unprotected. And the passage we're looking at today and the whole hope of Christmas really is that lasting peace is only found in the promised Son. The one who comes to rule the world, starting with our hearts. And that's what we're going to look at today. That this, this idea that lasting peace is only found in the promised Son who comes to rule the world. And that's a challenging proposition, I think, especially if you've grown up in, in, in this world around us, in the Western world in particular, in the United States, and our epidemic of individuality. We don't want to submit. I don't want to hear that the way to find peace is to not fight for it myself, but to receive it as a gift. To find out that I won't find peace as I continue to run my own life my own way, but in fact, will only find peace as I listen to someone else and let them tell me what is best. And part of the problem is that that, there's so much abuse in our culture along those lines and historically in the world around us, in governments, in church governments, and in every place, in homes. And yet that doesn't change the fact that the Scriptures plainly present that the only hope we have for peace is this promised Son who will come to rule the world, including you and I. And we will not find peace until we understand that, until we understand Him. 
So that's what we're going to dig into today a bit. And find the hope, actually, I think a surprising hope for us. So what does that look like, this promised son? How do we find peace? Well, first we need to understand that the promised son comes to bring peace and to rule over all things for eternity. He comes forever. We see this in verses throughout this passage, but in particular in verses uh, 7, at the beginning and the end, where we read, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. At the end of verse 7, from then on and forevermore. This eternal rule of the promised son is something, as Isaiah writes in the 700s BC, that is yet future. Uh, the language in the NASB translates this passage as future. There will be no end. Uh, verse 6 A child will be born, a son will be given. And the government will rest. His name will be called. And technically those, those grammatically are, aren't future tense verbs. The only future tense verb in this whole passage is actually at the very end. The very last verb at the end of verse 7 where it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is the language of prediction of guarantee. That is the language of God saying, I'm going to do this. And what it does is frame everything that just came before it, though it's spoken in the present tense, as something yet future, but something that is guaranteed, something that is certain to happen, so certain that we bring it over into English as a future. Because we know in the whole passage these things have not yet happened. But the way God works in revealing the future, in predicting the future, is to say this is what is going to happen. A son is coming. A son will rule. Someone will be an heir to, the king, to King David and will sit on his throne. And as verse 7 puts it, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That this is the son who is coming. It will be a descendant of David, the king. And throughout history, you know, sons of kings have played an important role. And in fact, the lack of a son to sit on the throne has been traumatic for many nations. You think of King Henry VIII, who pretty much not, not only caused lots of problems in England, but split the church of his day by breaking away from the Pope who said that Henry couldn't marry another woman, that he was already married to, I can't remember her name, but his first wife, who was actually the widow of his dead brother, but she didn't give him a son. And so he said, I want another wife. And he wound up going through, I think, four or five wives, six, thank you. Henry VIII with six wives, didn't quite get up to eight. But... Uh, that, that need for a king to have a son to pass the rule down has been a, a historical reality throughout history. 
It was actually a, a part of God's plan for Israel in the beginning that the king who sat on the throne, that David himself would then have a son who would rule after him, and he would have a son who would rule after him, and he would have a son, that there would be this continual reign. And it worked out kind of in the beginning if you get past Saul, the first king of Israel, and everything that happened there. But then you had David, whose son Solomon took over, and not without controversy, and not without actually some bloodshed. But then Solomon's son took over, Rehoboam, and that was pretty much it for the united kingdom of Israel. His immediate foolishness upon taking the throne and raising taxes led to revolt, and the kingdom was divided to a northern kingdom that became called Israel and Ephraim and a couple other names. And then the southern kingdom where the sons of David continued to rule, where the descendants of David continued to reign. And it was pretty good succession, father to son, consistently throughout the generations. But in the north, it wasn't so. And in fact, they had a hard time lasting more than one generation. Maybe a couple, two, three descendants could sit on the throne in northern Israel, one after the other, but it didn't last. And in fact, at the time when Isaiah is writing, if not immediately after it, but pretty close to Israel's northern kingdom would be captured taken into captivity and exiled and be no more. That happened in about 722 B.C. and Isaiah was writing in the mid-700s B.C. So it's right around that time. The southern kingdom, though it had a succession of rulers, didn't fare much better. They lasted maybe another 150 or 200 years depending on when Isaiah was writing until they were also taken into captivity such that there was no more kingdom of Israel north or south. After, is, after Isaiah's words, after Isaiah's prophecy, after God said that a son would come. And so the question is, then, well, did God's promise fail? Where is the son who will be given to us? Where is the one who would sit on the throne of David forevermore? And that... That raises not only that first problem of, well, the kingdom went away, how is this to be fulfilled? But the bigger problem of even if the kingdom was still going, how are you going to find a human to sit on the throne forever and ever that at some point in the future after Isaiah, there would come a time when this son would reign forever and ever? There is no human being that this could possibly apply to. And so lasting peace needs more than just this idea of a promised son who will reign for eternity. Lasting peace brings us to the second point, which is a son who will reign for God. Not only for eternity, but reign for God, rule for God. And this son has a big name. A very big name. Look, look at verse 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is one name, it says. This is his name, singular. Not his names, but his name. If you, if you put that together in the Hebrew, it's pretty long. If you put it together in English, Hi, I'm Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. How are you doing? <laughs> Bob, you know. Like, that's, a, that's a big name. 
Just lots of words. But then, if you actually look at the words, this is a big name. You know, you might think of a person who, who is a wonderful counselor. You know, I mentioned David Powelson in the, that poem he wrote. This is a man who counseled people and helped them for many, many, many years. And wrote many, many helpful things. He passed away a few years ago. But he continues to help us to this day. He's a wonderful counselor. Human being, he is. Uh, you think of, you know, a prince of peace. You know, there have been people in history who have been uh, maybe worthy of that title in a sense, in a limited sense. You know, Nelson Mandela bringing peace in South Africa in so many ways, tra- transforming a society there. But, I mean, even if you would allow someone could be called one of those two names, you get to eternal Father and mighty God there in the middle, and, and like, who's going to bear that name? Hi, I'm mighty God. <laughs> Hi, I'm eternal Father. Oh, are you? You know, we have a place for you. It's, you know, like those are big, big names. As one commentator put it, here is the Old Testament messianic enigma or mystery. How can a veritable son of David be mighty God and father of eternity? Eternal father. One explanation might be that this is a symbolic name. As big as it is and as weighty as it is, Isaiah has already had two sons mentioned in this book, and they have big names that are hard to pronounce for us anyway, uh, that are symbolic. One of them was Sher Jeshub, Remnant Will Return, Isaiah 7.3. The other one was Meher Shalal Hashbaz, Hasten Booty and Speed the Spoil, Isaiah 8.1-4. Those are big names. Those are symbolic names. They don't come close to wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. They don't account for, it wouldn't be enough for this to be symbolic to say that this Son is going to rule forever. That this Son will come and sit on the throne of David. It doesn't account for that reign of justice and righteousness that it presents here in this passage. That the Son has not only a big name, but He has a big presence look at verse 7 there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace okay we're familiar with the no end of an increase of government right big government going government grows and grows and grows right okay but this is a government that has not only no end of increase of government which really in this in this passage means dominion or rule There's no place where it it does not expand to rule and to bring peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. I think we would all sign up for a growing government that brought growing peace and growing justice and growing righteousness. We would have literally nothing to complain about if that happened. That if we felt safer and better cared for by an expanding government. But um, as much as you might like the government or not like it, can you say that it expands and brings more and more justice and righteousness wherever whatever government you can think of goes? No. Short answer. The best experiment in the history of the world in terms of government is the United States of America, I think. I'm a little biased. But with its system of checks and balances, of splitting the powers apart, right? That they would always kind of keep each other in line, right? 
And it's just been perfect. It's been a non-stop spreading of justice and righteousness, right? Right? Is this on? Please don't say right. <laughs> because from the beginning it was broken. Because we said all men are created equal. Well, unless your skin color is this, or you come from that place, or you're a woman, whatever, right? You're not quite equal. And that was the best place, was the starting place. And then bad things happen. You just dig into the research. I love the United States. I, I, and we have a bad history of injustice and unrighteousness. There is justice and righteousness. There's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of good. Don't hear me saying there isn't. And we also have to own that what I think was probably the best form of government, it probably still remains it, doesn't bring spreading justice and righteousness. It is accompanied by injustice. The treatment of Native Americans in the 1800s, the trail of tears, the breaking of treaty after treaty, the enslaving of West Africans and Africans and other nationalities, kidnapping from their homelands and bringing them across the seas forcibly, violently, killing them. It's injustice. It's wrong. It's unrighteousness. And it's the best that the world has ever seen. That tells you something, brothers and sisters. That if there is a son to come, if there is a king who will rule, if there's a government to come that will bring peace and righteousness and justice, then it has to be from somewhere else besides among us human beings. That it has to be something more. And this big presence is centered in the rule of one person who is himself God. It is the only way that this promise can be fulfilled. It is the only way that you can have an increase of dominion and rule that brings justice and righteousness rather than oppression and brokenness. Can you imagine in, in, under this rule and reign what the nightly news would be like or you know, what the headlines of your favorite news site would be, right? It'd be like, yeah, another night of peace, you know? No, no violence in the city again tonight. No corruption to report. No senators that were voting on and trying to convince to step down because they have repeatedly done things that are wrong and resistant and are not resigning. No, no, no polarity and brokenness. No accusations of wrongdoing within a party or against the other party. This is yet another day of peace and progress and, and harmony and cooperation. Can you imagine that? That's the vision. That's what this ruler promises to bring. This one who is to come, this promised son, who's clearly not merely a human child. He has to reign forever. He's not merely a human being because he seems untainted by corruption, by sin and brokenness. He will bring justice, fairness, He's incorruptible. He's untainted. If you read closely, what it's pointing to is the same thing that Jesus challenged the Pharisees on. That this Son of David, this promised One who is to come to rule and reign, must be more than just a Son of David. David's, David calls Him in Psalm 110, you know, great David calls His Son Lord. He says this one is better than me. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 22, 41-46. That this one to come is also called Emmanuel. 
Isaiah 7.14 speaks of the birth from a virgin of Emmanuel, God with us. And lasting peace is, is only going to be found in this promised Son, the one who comes to rule the world for eternity, to rule the world for God, and finally to rule the world for you, for your good. He brings a government of peace. Look again at the text. It says he is the Prince of Peace at the end of verse 6. Beginning of verse 7, he says there will be no end to the increase of his government or his rule or of peace. I don't know what you think about when you think of the word peace. It's hard not to think about in our day and age of of the actual wars that are happening in Palestine between Israel and Hamas and all that, or in the Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine, or other places you might know. In fact, the, the recent uh, rebellions in, I think, Sierra Leone and West Africa, that, that these are wars. And when they cease, we think, oh, it's peace. But peace in the biblical sense and what this passage is pointing to and what all the Scriptures point to is something way bigger than merely the absence of conflict and hostility and open violence. The word peace brings with it a sense of wholeness, of completeness, of harmony, of fulfillment. Those are, as one commentator puts it, closer to the meaning Implicit, he says, in shalom, which is the word in Hebrew for peace, implicit in shalom is the idea of unimpaired relationships with others and fulfillment in one's undertakings. That this prince of peace who brings the spreading of peace is one who brings wholeness, harmony, completeness, fulfillment, Satisfaction, you might say, to all people, to all of our longings, to all that is broken. He brings peace, wholeness, restoration, reconciliation. That's why we read that great promise in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 through 14. As the angels appear to the shepherds, Luke 2, 10. We read what they say. As meanwhile, Mary and Joseph are in the manger. The angel appears, Luke 2.10, and said to them, the shepherds, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They say a moment later, the whole host appears, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. That the promise of the Son is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, in in His humble birth in that stable. It's the beginning of the One who would then come to rule the nations. The One who would come to not merely teach us some really good things. Not merely to show us how to live in a really good way. But in fact to win us over to His side. To conquer our own hearts and bring peace here, first of all. That He might then bring peace everywhere throughout all 
of creation. This is what God's plan was. Paul speaks of it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, where we read, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That this peace and the promise of it comes through this Son, through the child to be born to us, as Isaiah prophesies, for the one who would come to sit on David's throne, the one who would not stay a baby. One of our great temptations in this season is to keep focusing on the birth of Jesus, and it's great, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's so necessary. And one of the reasons I really like starting off Advent for a couple of weeks at least singing some of those dirges, as some people call them, the minor key carols, the, the ones that aren't really familiar, the ones that talk about the longing and brokenness of our world. I love starting off with those at least because it's just so easy to stay with the baby in the manger and rejoice in the cute little one and forget that in fact the cross and the shadow of the cross is always looming over him even there in the manger. And uh, by, by God's providence, I don't think Justin and I picked this song out on purpose, but I was thinking about it. We're going to sing in a moment. What child is this? And verse 2 in the middle says this, Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, Hail the Word made flesh, the Babe, the Son of Mary. That this Son would come not merely to be born and to live, not merely to die or rise again, but in fact to rule over all things. That in fact right now, as hard as it is to believe, and as much as we see evidence against it in the world around us, Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things. You are never alone. And He will return one day and He'll finish the good work. That's our longing. That's our hope. That we don't give up confidence that the day is coming when the nightly news will be boring. When Jesus returns and sets everything right. That the day will come when, when we will stop longing. We will stop turning to the salt water to, when we're thirsty. We'll stop searching in the desert for food when it's never going to be there. When we'll stop walking through the jungle and find that we have arrived at home. That the broken pieces of this world will all be put together again. And it's only through this one. It's only through the Son. And we have to get Him right. And I love Christmas. It is a joy. And we need to not leave the baby there. That this son is the one who will rule forever. He'll rule for God. He'll rule for you. And you need to get that right and understand who he is to understand the way the world is going to be put right. The story is told of, of a man who woke up 
around 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and his wife and children were still asleep, and he enjoyed the time to himself alone. He made some coffee, he went downstairs, you know, brewed the coffee, began to read the morning paper. So this is a little older story, you know, back in the day when there was a newspaper, and uh, you, you would get it in the morning and read it. So he's, he's just starting to read his newspaper, which, by the way, children, was a, 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 a big thing about yay big that was just like a big sheet of paper. Think about a poster with small words and stories, and then you would turn that poster page, and there'd be more on the back. And I think I'm being silly, but I think kids probably actually need to know that, don't they? Has anybody seen a newspaper lately? I don't know. Anyway, so this is so he's reading this thing, right? And there's all kinds of advertisements and articles and pictures in the newspaper. And he begins to read it, and as soon as he starts to read a couple sentences into the first article, he sees his daughter coming down the stairs and says, oh, honey, go back to bed. I want to read, you know, go back to bed. She says, I'm not sleepy. And he's holding the paper and he sees a, a picture and he has an idea. And so he cuts something out and he hands it to her and says, hey, rips it apart. Go, go put this together. It's, it's, a, it's a map of the world. Go see, here's some scotch tape. Go see if you can put the pieces together and tape it together and bring back, you know, the world in one piece. And so she goes off and he has maybe a couple sips of coffee, doesn't quite finish the first article, and she comes back and says, Daddy, I'm finished. And he says, how did you do it so fast, sweetie? She says, it was easy, Daddy. On the back side of the page is a picture of a man. And when you get the man right, you make the world right. Brothers and sisters, the world is broken. Broken in pieces. And the only solution is to submit to the Son who will rule and reign with justice with righteousness, to not put our hope in any earthly leader. Don't hear me saying don't vote. Don't hear me saying don't have opinions and convictions and values. But every single leader is going to let you down. That's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus is going to return. Our hope is that He's in fact reigning and ruling right now. And whatever is broken... Whatever causes you tears and frustrations and sorrows, he's aware of. And if you, can, if you can wrestle with it, he's allowing it. And it's serving his purposes. In fact, he will use it for good. That's his promise. That nothing happens outside of his permission. And he will work all things together for good. And the way to peace starts with just recognizing that. Of giving up on your own rule and your own reign over your life and allowing Him to lead. Don't leave that Son in the manger or don't leave Him on earth just teaching. Don't even leave Him on the cross. Don't leave Him in heaven. Let Him rule in your life. It is the only way you're going to find peace. It's the only way you're going to point the world around you to peace. It's the only way the broken pieces of your own life will come together is if you look to Jesus for hope. Because He is the promised Son. Jesus is the one 
who comes to rule the world, starting with you and your heart. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, convince us again, O Lord, that lasting peace is only going to be found in You. That You are faithful to Your promises and You have shown that throughout history and all of these prophecies fulfilling, fulfilled in Jesus. That You did come to rule the world, Lord. Convince us again that we might believe that You are still ruling and reigning and that You allow things that are confusing to us And you have suffered all that's required to bring an end to it all. And you will one day return. And meanwhile, Lord, that we'll find peace in you. We'll find a peace that passes understanding. We'll find a peace that brings perseverance. Because we look to you. Rule in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.